Uh, well, thank you, Katie and Abby. Uh, man, a tremendous job, both of you guys, and, and everyone else who's helped to lead VBS so far, but just outstanding work in getting us ready to go. So excited about what will be. I'll be here tonight looking forward to that. Um, there's going to be some energy in this room tonight, that's for sure, no question about that. Um, I've been away for a couple of weeks on vacation. Thank you for, as a church for allowing our family time for that. It was refreshing for us, and so we really enjoy, enjoy that time. Had a chance to go out west and had a great time there. You saw some pictures, probably not on my Facebook account because I post about once a decade, but maybe on my wife's uh, you saw that. Um, I want to thank you, thank Kevin and Greg for speaking the past couple Sundays. Um, had a chance to listen to both and really are grateful for... Um, for both of you and your contributions to the body. So, Well, hey, this morning I wanted to, to jump back into this series that we're in called Stronger. I'm on part, I think, 7 of 11. And, and as we start this, this morning, um, I want to talk about something that we all are experiencing, and it's a really unique period of time that we're in right now, of course, and that is um, the, the changing and the really weird um, valuations of our economy right now. Meaning, like you know, uh, if you've been living at all in the past year, that um, home prices are crazy, right? You also know, and I did not know this until this past week, that um, car prices are really crazy. In fact, this past week was the first time that I heard of people offering more than asking price for cars, not just for homes. I thought that was incredibly strange. Um, I've run into contractors who are also running into problems of being able to um, bid too far out. Many are busy. Um, very busy, and the price of lumber, the price of copper, the price of steel is making their business model very difficult to forecast and project going forward. You may be in that boat as well, grateful for the work, but struggling both with the amount of work you're trying to do and also with the reality that you've got some really dramatically shifting costs that are undercutting really your, your bids. You just simply can't go too far out right now. It's a really weird time that way, really strange time. And valuations are important because we have to have some kind of standard expectation. If you're going to bid a job or look at a home or try to buy a car, there has to be a generally agreed upon value, even within a range of this is how much this service or product is actually worth. And when it goes crazy, everything gets weird. And I might want to transition from that into the question of this, and that, that is not just how are we going to value and how do we value um, the things that we use, the places that we stay, and the things we drive, but also my question really for this morning is how do we value one another? What is the value of a person? Who gets to make that evaluation? Not evaluation, excuse me, valuation. Who decides what someone is actually worth? Now, it's a Apparently a million dollar question to, to figure out what the price of milk is and who sets the price of milk. I remember asking a farmer that a couple years ago. I said, well, milk prices fluctuate. Can someone just tell me who sets the milk prices? At which point then I had about an hour and a half explanation of how that's such a difficult thing to do. If it's difficult for milk, I might wonder, is it difficult for people? Who gets to set the value on people whom we live with in the world around us. Now, if you were to grow up in India, for example, in a primarily Hindu context, it might be easier but also very difficult because you'd find yourself in what they call the caste system, where you might say, well, it's easy. If you're in the upper caste, you're more valuable, and if you're in the lower caste, you're less valuable. Now, we might say in America, we're grateful that we don't live in a caste system like that, and then if we were to dig a little bit further, and if you've actually gone through high school, you might realize we actually do live in a caste system in high school. 
There are certain people who are around you and you just know by default that they're not quite as valuable as some other people. You feel the different valuations that we place on each other and while not a formal caste system, everybody has experienced the feeling of walking into a group of peers and realizing I'm the odd one out. I don't have that background. I don't have that future. I don't have that experience. I might be a different mentality or worldview, whatever it might be. And the value of yourself in a room and with other people changes based on where you are. Who gets to set the value for where you are? If you've moved around our country, even around this region, you may have seen the shifting value. Illustrated this way, if you vote one way here in Lancaster County, you may be valued. But if you vote that same way in California, you may not be valued. If you were to, to have a particularly explicit sexual orientation in some of our cities, you might be valued and honored. But if you were to express that somewhere else, you'd be devalued. If you were to have a faith expression, Here, you might be valued, but if you were to take this faith expression from this community and take it to some other city in our country, they may look at you and devalue you. Who gets to set the value of people around our diverse world and even around our diverse nation and certainly among our diverse families and backgrounds that we all have? Now, here's what I would like to argue this morning. I I, I would hope for, I would hope for, and maybe it's a pipe dream, so maybe you can help correct me. But I would long for, I would long for a a place where people could be valued intrinsically for how their creator God has made them, regardless of all the other things that we give to them. I would long for, and maybe it's a pipe dream, to think that you can vote however you want and you can be oriented however you want and you can have this economic background and this racial background and you can have these views however you want, but understand that underneath it all, that you're actually valued because you're made in the image of creator God. Now, the ancients have a phrase that, that has fallen out of use in modern day terms, but it's a term that can help us in this conversation. It's a term called the fear of God. When they talk about the fear of God, they don't necessarily mean that someone is sitting in the corner cowering and just afraid of God, as if God is going to come and strike down someone for not doing all of the right things in the right ways. The fear of God simply means I, I revere, I honor, or I'm, I, I, I place as a priority God and his will and his desires and his values over my own. And here's what I'd like to make the case for this morning, and then I want to take you to a passage of Scripture and let you see what you see, and maybe we can learn some things together. But I'd like to make the case that this happens, that, that when we lose the fear of God, we inevitably devalue one another. That when we lose the fear of God, we inevitably devalue one another. That I'd like to argue that God is the creator, is the one, if I'm going to, this is a terrible, terrible thing about to say, so forgive me. God's the one who sets the milk prices, all right? Terrible to say that. What I mean is God is the one who sets the valuation for people. It's not all that complicated, that God is the one, and when we lose that organizing principle, if you will, when we lose the fear of God and we lose an agreement that God as a creator has made and stamped his image on every single person on this planet, when we lose that, we inevitably devalue one another. Because there's things about you that I may not prefer, and I know there's things about me that you may not prefer. And those become all of a sudden more 
important. And over time, I want to get value from you. I don't want to give value to you. Now, I want to take you to a passage of Scripture in our book that we're in. We're in an Old Testament, the first half of your Bible. We're in an Old Testament book called Nehemiah. And I want to invite you to turn to Nehemiah. And if you don't own a Bible, that's not a problem at all. There's a Bible in the chairs near you. And in Nehemiah chapter 5, it's, it's um, a story that we're walking through of a nation of Israel trying to return from captivity and find their way again and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem for safety and security. And in Nehemiah chapter 5, we find ourselves in a unique spot in this story. Just to bring you up to speed briefly, uh, Nehemiah and his crew have successfully gathered momentum. They've gained momentum and traction, and they are working to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They've found success there. They've already pushed back on some of the enemies that they, uh, you know, have been pushing on. And, and here in chapter 5, we actually are coming off of a win. I'm not going to reread chapter 4, but at the end of chapter 4, where we were a couple of weeks ago, Nehemiah and his crew pushed back against the threats from the outside, this guy named Sanballat, who was an enemy, and they came up with a plan that, that people would basically, you can imagine going to work and having a sword in one hand and kind of trowel in the other. You're, you're putting together a wall, and you're ready to fight at the same time. And there was a, a real win and kind of a spirit of success and growth, and Nehemiah is here in the city, and things are going in the right direction. But then chapter 5 is just an honest and difficult uh, section of Nehemiah to get into. It's one that I don't prefer. I'd almost wish it wasn't even here because it, it, it's good in that it humanizes the story because this is real life that we're about to see. But it's also hard because there's parts of my heart, if I'm honest, that I find in the, the sentences that we're about to read, and I don't love that part of me. And, and maybe you may find some parts of your heart in here too. So let's, let's look at it in chapter 5 and verse, verse 1. I'm going to read the first, we're going to go through the first 13 verses here, but we'll do it a little bit at a time. Now, the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous, and in order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. So here's a couple things that are going on. At the beginning of this verse, uh, we see something that we may think is normal, that the men and their wives are both raising an outcry. But just remember, if you will, for a minute, whether you like it or don't like it, 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 it is what it is, as they say, that in this period of time, to have a woman raise her voice in protest is unusual. To have a woman stand up and say, I don't like this as well, is highly unusual. And so when Nehemiah 5.1 opens up and we hear not only are the men who are the power brokers saying this, but also their wives are associated with this, this is unusual and strong. And when we see, he says that they raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. This is actually, uh, and I don't know how you would know this unless maybe I tell you, this is actually a legal, a technical legal term. What they're saying is we are going to sue you. <laughs> and that speaks our language, right? They're threatening a lawsuit, not just threatening, they're planning it. This is legal, technical action that they're planning to take. Both the men and the wives are saying to Nehemiah, we are ready to sue, we need to do something because what's happening right now isn't working, which is odd because it's right off the heels of what was a great chapter. 
We just had success. We're building and fighting and preparing one another. And now all of a sudden, the men and the women are standing up, the men and their wives, and saying, we are ready to sue each other. There is infighting. There is division. There's a problem within the ranks. And then the explanation of it and our understanding of it moves from, um, I'm going to say, general to specific or lesser to greater. Verse 2 is a lesser but an opening understanding of what's going on. And what we see there is that some were saying that our sons and daughters are numerous. In other words, we've got a big family. And in order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. I mean, that makes sense, right? Walmart wasn't around quite yet, and there was no DoorDash. And so at this point, you need to do something to get food. And there's so many of us. And because Jerusalem was in poverty for so long, that commercial ties were cut between Jerusalem and the cities around them. And so the normal trade that would happen wasn't happening. And so when you're in that space of poverty for 70 years, it is difficult to reestablish a trade route. It is difficult to just kick back in and restart what had been working. And so they are in abject poverty and have been, and now they've got these big families and they're struggling to eat. In fact, it gets worse. Verse 3 takes it more specifically and makes it a little bit worse, helps us understand. Others were saying, Hey, well, you think you have a bad, you're just hungry. For us, we're not only hungry, but we're also mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. We're taking out lines of credit against our properties so that we can actually buy food. Now, you know, if you take out a line of credit against something that is a perishable product, if you will, you're actually getting poorer. You're not taking a line out against an asset, you're taking it out against a depreciable asset. In other words, you're getting poorer by the day. You can't take out credit and then eat <laughs> what you bought and expect that you're somehow going to make that up somewhere down the line. When you start taking out a line of credit for food, you know that it's just a matter of time until things go really poorly. And some were saying, this is getting worse for us. Verse 4, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Meaning, you guys, listen, we have to pay our real estate taxes. This is what this is. We've got to pay our real estate taxes. We can't get our quarterlies paid. So we have to take out money just to pay taxes, not only grain, but now taxes. And then it gets even worse. Verse 5, Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Nearly impossible situation for me to understand, but what would you do if you couldn't eat, you've already mortgaged your fields, you've already taken out a line of credit against your home, that's maxed out. Now what they're saying is, well, if you were to come to me and I was to be a wealthy Jew and you were to be a struggling Jew, I would say, well, what, what other assets do you have? And when your answer is, I have my children, and I say, that'll work, I'll take them into slavery, this is now what Nehemiah is dealing with. And this is now what the Jews are doing to one another. The wealthy, looking at the people, the children, the families, and saying, you're an asset to me. I can get value from you, and I'm going to take it. 
Which is why the men and their wives raised a great outcry and said, this cannot be. Nehemiah, I love what happens in verse 6. When I heard their outcry, it's as if I hear their opening arguments, and these charges, again, legal terminology, I was very angry. And maybe even as I described the situation to you, there was some of that injustice that rose in your heart. And I think it should. I think it should make you angry to hear this. It's so difficult to imagine. Can you imagine coming to church with someone who is enslaving your children? It just, I can't, it blows my mind. It's just not even possible for me to imagine this. But this is the world the Jews were in. And Nehemiah, rightly so, he gets angry. It's an emotional response. I love that it's written here. He's not afraid of the emotion. And injustice should rightly make us angry. But then, verse 7, he pondered this in his mind and then took action, accused the nobles and the officials. And I told them, we go on here, he says, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back, we bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. This is, they were sold in slavery in the exile period. Now you're selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us? They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. Now, let me, me I, I pause on this. How in the world do people get here? Right? I kind of wondered that as I thought about this. I'm like, how, how do you get here? How do you live with yourself and be in a community where you're the wealthy, you have the social power, you have the economic power? How is it that you get to this point where you can sleep with your, you know, you can go to bed comfortable enough to say, this is what I'm, this is what I'm doing, this is the way the world works. I'll enslave their children and theirs and theirs, and I'll mortgage their fields, and hey, the haves, haves, and the have-nots don't have. And it's not my fault. If only they would be more diligent. If only they wouldn't have spent their money on cable TV, that would have helped them, you know. How do you get here? How do you get here? How is it that, that the Jews, the, the wealthier Jews, were so free to devalue their fellow Jews in this way? To look at them and say, you don't even have enough value for me to consider sharing my grain with you. You don't have value enough. In fact, the only value to me is that I can get something from you. How is it that people get this far? And verse 9 is a key verse, the way Nehemiah phrases it, and I love the way it is phrased, and it's the central turning point of this story. He continued, verse 9, so I continued. Number one, he said, what you're doing is not right. He simply calls it right and wrong. And I love that part. It's clear this is not right. And then what he says in the next sentence is so powerful. He says, shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? Now, this is a two-pronged answer. He said, shouldn't you do something? You should walk in the fear of our God. Shouldn't you have kept your mind and kept your eyes and kept your vision on the fear of the Lord? Shouldn't you have said the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? So for me to be wise, as Proverbs tells us, the best thing to do is to live with the fear of the Lord, with this respect and honor of what God would want, that the valuation of people is not what I think of them. It's not what I think of them. It's what God thinks of them every time, every time. 
Shouldn't you have lived in the fear of our God? Shouldn't you have done that? But then he says something at the end, which often we miss, and I have to admit I have missed it very much, and I wondered what it meant and the import of it. He says, shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God? He says, to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies. I'm like, what is that? To avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies. What does that even mean? And as I look at that and understand this, what he's saying here is basically the Gentiles who are our enemies, the people who are outside of the faith that we share as fellow Jews, if you haven't paid attention, Jews, they're looking at you like you're morons. Why would they want the God that you have? Look at what you're doing to your own people. The people outside of your faith are looking at you and saying, what kind of foolishness is this? This is insanity. Why would you treat each other in this way? And how is it, and in what world would I ever say, oh, let me, let me worship the God that you worship because the way you live looks like such a great idea. You're enslaving each other's children. Brilliant. I can't wait to serve that God. The reproach of the Gentiles. Now, thankfully, you and I aren't living in that world today. But yet, but yet, there are parallels, aren't there? You know, and I know people who have walked away from the Christian faith. You and I both know people who have never embraced the faith that maybe you share or you're trying to figure out, you know, what your own faith even is. And on the outside of a Christian faith, there are people who have made accusations. There are people who have said things, who have wondered about the wisdom and the, the care that Christians show to one another. In my own life, I know that there are, are people who have um, asked, I'm going to put it this way, you may have heard this before, but who have asked um, fact-based questions and have received faith-based answers, who have heard and felt from the Christian community that we don't care necessarily about intellectual rigor in our faith. We just care about feeling good together in worship and continuing to perpetuate faith, that our faith is based on faith, that our faith isn't based on fact and faith that we don't actually base our faith on the, the fact of Christ's resurrection, but we base it on faith. And I've had people tell me on the backside, and I think you have too. Why would I want to believe in a, in a worldview that forces me to commit intellectual suicide? The reproach of the Gentiles, if you will. I've had people, and you probably have too, who have said, you know what, I th my experience with the church is that it's more concerned with the, the length of our ladies' skirts than it is about the abuse of power within the church. They're more concerned that we're getting out a measuring tape and making sure that it's just one inch above the knee and that's about it. But when it comes to the things that actually matter, that impact people, that value them, the church has been a joke. I'm not saying they're all right, okay? I'm not saying they're all right. I'm not saying everything that the critic says is right. But I am saying that what Nehemiah is experiencing and putting out to these people is, listen, you should have both lived in the fear of God and listened, listen to the reproach of the Gentile enemies. Because even those on the outside of faith would look at what you're doing and say, this, this doesn't make any sense at all. And this is uh, hard 
for me and troubling but also good because there are times I find in my own heart that I need to listen well to the people who are outside of faith or who are questioning faith, to listen and hear so that my fear of God can also be informed by the reproach of Gentiles, if you will, so that I can hear and see the things that sometimes I take for granted that I otherwise would not see. The reproach of Gentiles is a gift to see where sometimes we may come to agree with one another and learn to live with one another and just think this is the way it works. This is the way it always works. But sometimes when you hear and listen to those outside of faith, you begin to see what it means to actually fear God in a different way. Well, Nehemiah goes further with it. And he, he brings it to some resolution. And he says in verse 10, he says, I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you're charging them. 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. Hey, we'll give it back, they said. And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out the house, their, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. And at this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. And the people did as they had promised. And when the people of God act in this way, amazing things happen. Amazing things happen. This is the example all the way back in the fourth century um, of uh, an emperor. He only was a Roman emperor for two years, Julian the Apostate. And I have shared some of this before with you. And back in that period of time, Julian the Apostate was trying to turn his world back to um, worshiping Roman gods. And here's what he had to say as he was trying, he's known as Julian the Apostate because he pushed against Christianity. Here's what he had to say when he was trying to turn the empire back to Roman gods. He put it this way. He said, the religion of the Greeks does not yet prosper as I would wish on account of those who profess it. Meaning like those who want, I'm trying to get people to worship our gods, but the, but the pagans, he's like, as pagans, we're not doing a good enough job of making paganism worthwhile. Like, on account of those who profess it, it's not that attractive. And then he contrasted it with Christians, and he, he put it this way. Why then do we not observe how the kindness of Christians to strangers, their care for the burial of their dead and the sobriety of their lifestyle has done the most to advance their cause? He's saying, pagans, listen, look around at the Christians. These people, they are kind to strangers, they take care of burying their own dead, which at this time was something that most people simply did not do because there's too much disease and sickness, but they are getting their hands dirty with the messy stuff of life that other people simply don't value. They're actually kind. They actually look at people, even who are not like them, and they take care of them. What is wrong with us? Like, if we're going to make any inroads as pagans, we need to at least learn that this is the way forward, is what he's saying. It's profound, isn't it? See, this is so important to me and I think important to you because what we want at the end of the day is we want people, we want people to, to feel valued, not just so that our self-esteem is high, but also because of what Nehemiah experienced. He talked about the reproach of the Gentiles. How I treat you and how you treat me, you know this, reflects on the God that I claim to serve, right? You know that, and I know that is true as well. 
Just this week, uh, well, let me preface this by saying this. Uh, when I went to seminary at Dallas Seminary, they told us, told us this way. They said, um, hold the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. Now, for those who don't know what a newspaper is, let me put it this way. Hold the Bible in one hand and scroll through Twitter, Twitter feed on the other, okay? I mean, whatever you got to do. But, but their point was, read the scriptures, right? Stay engaged. Make sure that you're engaged in the truth of the Word of God. Truth comes from God's Word is what I believe, what I've been taught. But also, that truth must be anchored into the practical reality of our day-to-day existences. It just must be. We must speak the scriptures into what we currently experience and what we see running through our headlines and what our kids and what we engage in media. This week, I was in a local business and I ran into a an acquaintance, and there was someone else at the table, and these, this is a story not of anyone at Grace Point Church, so there you have it. This week, they literally, they had a newspaper. As I walked by them, we said hi, and they had a newspaper right there. It was a, the headline was, Lancaster uh, Newspapers was about the um, transgender challenge at Hempfield School District right now, and if you don't know that, that's okay, but there's a student who I think, I'm going to get the facts a little wrong, but I think wanted to run on the track team, and I think um, biologically male and wanted to run on the female track team, if I'm not mistaken. Again, I could be wrong. Forgive me if I am. But it's created a bit of a stir, as one could imagine, about what this means, right? How to, how to handle this, what this looks like. And, and there's protests on either side, and there's big school board meetings, and you can imagine, you can imagine the kind of boom this would be in that space. So here, this was the leading article, right, in, in the... Lancaster uh, newspaper. So they, they, picked a, they picked up the paper and showed it to me, and they made this quick comment like, these people can't even figure out who they are. And threw it over here. I'm like, I, that's perfect. That's, is there a better response? I mean, seriously, like to me, I'm thinking, really, is that the best response that Christians can give to this? These people can't even figure out who they are. And the people who are seated with him really had no reaction to that, and it may not have been the proper time to do that. But I'm thinking to myself as a Christian, and I know this individual would claim to, to follow Christ as well, is this the best we can do with those that we may not agree with? Is this the best we can do? Is this the highest value we can give to humanity? That these people, we've already categorized them, don't even know who they are and then discard them like we discard that paper and then on to the people that we care about and people we value who are right around this table who think like me and act like me. Is this the best we can do as Christians? Or is there a higher standard? Is there a fear of God that we need to look to? Now, I'm not asking you to change your convictions. Listen to me. I'm not asking you to change convictions. I'm asking for compassion. The two are different, Okay. I'm not asking you to change a conviction. I'm asking for compassion. I'm asking for value on humanity, not to change a conviction. But I'm asking for compassion and kindness, like the kind that changed an empire and changed the world, the kind that wasn't present for Nehemiah. You know, I was at another place of business just a few weeks ago, and I was interacting with them, and this business owner... <laughs> In the course of conversation, we just dropped a, a racial slur that I don't even feel comfortable repeating here in, in this space. And I couldn't believe it. And he went on and laughed it off as if, it was, as if we agreed that this would be appropriate to categorize this group of people in this way. <laughs> is, this the, is this the best we can do? Or have we lost this fear of God? 
that fundamentally all people are made in the image of God and fundamentally all have value, regardless of where they vote, regardless of how they're oriented, regardless of where they come from, regardless of skin color, regardless of you fill in the blank. But my goodness, friends, can we do better? And here's Nehemiah's story of people whose hearts over time had just been hardened because they'd lost the fear of God. They went so far as to enslave each other's children because they were getting value from them, not giving value to them. And so I want to encourage you to ask a couple of questions. One is this. How can you use your platform to give value to those around you today? How can you use your platform to give value to those around you? Not just to take value from, but to give value to. Whether that's in your business, whether it's in your family, whether that is with your school, whatever it may be. How can you use your platform? And it may be as simple as an encouragement. You may see someone who is on the outside, who doesn't feel like they're part of the group. You may need a, a reminder, a note. You may just need, listen, friendship. Because the people who already have power, the problem in Nehemiah's period of time was the power brokers, the people who had the power, who were looked at in their culture and society as these are the ones who have the social power. They have the social capital. They have the influence. They have the leadership. They have the money. The power brokers were continuing to get value from, but not giving value to. And I'm going to ask you, and you, you are a power broker in some way, in your family, maybe in your business, maybe in a broader way in your community. How can you use your platform to give value to, not just take value from? Because at the end of the day, we believe, Christians believe, that God, as a creator God, has made everyone in his image. And fundamentally, that is what it means to be human, and that is where value comes from. And the reason this matters is not just because we want people to feel good about themselves. The reason this matters, the reason this matters, is because I don't want, and you don't want, the reproach of the Gentiles, not on you, but on the God that we claim to serve. Because who in the world would ever look at the God of a Christian and say, wait, if you don't value everybody, why would I want to serve your God as well? Because there's a direct correlation, and you know this, there's a direct correlation between our fear of God and the value we place on those around us. And so let me just encourage you, for the sake of our collective witness, and let me, let me push just on this, and then I want to wrap it up. If you want to get uncomfortable with this, let me push on it this way. If you want to get uncomfortable, let me encourage you to take a moment and think about who or what category of thing do you most quickly find good reason to devalue in people, especially right now? Here's what I mean. When you learn that someone is a votes left or votes right, is that a quick devaluation for you? When you learn that someone is sexually oriented one way or the other, is that a quick devaluation for you? When you learn that someone is living in poverty or living in upper class, is that a quick devaluation for you? See, what is it that when you hear or when you see you have an emotional reaction to, a strong reaction to, and a quick devaluation of? What is it that does that? And let me encourage you. Instead of allowing yourself the freedom of the, the release of that, let me encourage you. What does it look like to live in the fear of God in that moment so that we can avoid the reproach of the Gentiles? Not just for us, 
but so that we can, as Christians, give to people the value they're worth, the value that God, our Heavenly Father, has put on them as well. All right. I don't know if you find yourself here, but as I said at the beginning, if I'm honest with you, I'm speaking to you as a friend, as someone who finds my spot in here more often than I would like to admit. More often than I'd even prefer to talk about or engage sometimes. So friends, how can you use your platform to value those around you for the sake of God our Heavenly Father and Christ our Savior? Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good and hard challenge of Nehemiah this morning. For being able to see the messy junk of what he dealt with, now people's hearts had gone so far to, to lose care and love and basic human kindness for people who didn't have as much, for people who were able to be exploited, for people who could be taken advantage of to see that the rich became richer and surrounded themselves with other people who were thinking like them so they didn't have to deal with the convictions in their own heart. Father, I pray that you would help us as we seek to walk in integrity on a daily basis, sometimes moment by moment basis. I pray that you'd help us to be honest with our own engagement with the people who live right around us that we wouldn't discard anyone like the newspaper was discarded this week, that we wouldn't so quickly move on from and devalue those whom we live with, that we can, with basic human compassion and kindness, engage those who are most alienated, engage those who are most estranged, engage those on the outside with care and kindness and compassion so that they can see this is the nature of a loving Heavenly Father who has made all of us in His image. Give us courage and wisdom to act in that kind of compassion and to give value even to those who can give nothing back to us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.